Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Rana Dasgupta paints a portrait of 21st century Delhi in his book Capital, and then writer Sarah Dighton returns to tell us about Andrea Dworkin's book Intercourse. Rana Dasgupta won the 2010 Commonwealth Writers' Prize for Best Book for his debut novel Solo. He is also the author of a collection of urban folk tales, Tokyo Cancelled, which was shortlisted for the 2005 John Llewellyn Rees Prize. Capital is his first work of non-fiction, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. And Rana was born in Canterbury in 1971, but he's lived in Delhi for how many years is it now? It's 13. 13 years. So um, Delhi is what we're going to be talking about. Rana, thank you very much for joining me on Little Atoms today. Thank you for having me. So I want to get into why Delhi, first of all, but before we do that, you're a novelist, you've written a novel and a collection of short stories and said this is your first non-fiction book. But to me it really reads like a non-fiction book by a novelist. The descriptions of Delia are really amazing and lyrical, even when you're describing the not particularly nice side of it. And in fact, often I was reminded of that I was reading a sci-fi novel about some sort of future dystopia, not a place that actually really exists in the world and I mean that I mean that in a nice way (laughs) was being a novelist a integral part of writing this do you think or did you try and separate the two things no it was an integral part I mean I wanted to write a book about things that I'd seen over Mm -hmm. 10 years uh, which is how long I've been living in Delhi when when this book began and um, I felt that they were um, things that I could only communicate to other people in a non-fiction way Mm. because they were remarkable in themselves. They didn't really need elaboration. They needed reportage. And moreover, I felt that the lives of people who'd lived through all these things were extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And more extraordinary than I could make up, I needed to go and find these people and talk to them and not try and imagine them. Mm -hmm. But in approaching those people, it was very much as a novelist I wanted to do that. Meaning that Like the novelist, I was interested in them as complete human creatures, not as socioeconomic indicators. Mm -hmm. Um, I was interested in in their relationships and their states of emotion. I was interested in how they dressed and how they surrounded themselves with things. And I think that that's what I wanted to give to the reader. I think it's it's not enough to know that certain people have this much money and other people have this much Mm -hmm. money. 
in order to get into all this and to feel the kind of drama of it, you have to know what these people are like. And, mm-hmm. and that that's what a novelist can bring to the table. But I thought also as well, there's some of the details you pick out. And the, my favourite example of that is quite early on, and you're talking about your own father, and there's this idea of him, you know, collecting the clocks. He starts to collect 19th century French clocks. And it's a detail that, you know, you give a description of why that is. We don't have to go into the actual story, but the detail of why that is, which, you know, if I, I read that in a novel, I might think, oh, you know, that doesn't, doesn't necessarily ring quite true. But because this is, a, this is a true story, I thought it was, you know, your novelist's eye that really aimed in on that detail. Yeah, I, because I think what a novel is about is about how history courses through the lives of mm-hmm. individuals. History meaning everything, basically. And you, you're interested in the intimate or the, the particular because of its universal. And here, too, I felt that it was, in, in the treatment of individuals, even my own father, it was as novelistic characters, as, as people who, who display something beyond greater than themselves, mm-hmm. which is the history and, and places that they've come from. Let's talk about why Delhi, then. And there's, a, there's a wider point to that than just because... That is where you happen to be living for right. the last 13 years. But let's talk, first of all, of that. Why, why did you go to Delhi? Well, I was in love with somebody who lived in Delhi, and I moved there to be with her. I thought that I would be able to persuade her to leave mm-hmm. with me. So it's not like I moved there thinking, OK, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in Delhi. I, I packed a bag and I went there without much thought about the future. And two things happened. One is that she had no desire to be extracted from Delhi. She was doing very interesting things there. And the other thing is that I realised for myself what she knew, which was that this was a remarkable place and time to mm-hmm. find oneself in. Um, I moved there directly from New York I think like everyone who lives in New York for any period of time, you sort of feel you're at the centre of the universe and everything that's important is happening here. And when I moved to Delhi, I realised that really wasn't the case. That in retrospect, it was here that things were really happening. Mm. The, the, the pitch of conversations was much more intense and, and the stakes of everything seemed higher. Um, and people were doing stuff all around me. They were starting businesses, starting magazines and newspapers, starting publishing houses, starting art galleries, and mm. they were starting to make things Uh, novels and artworks and films and with a great sense of purpose and freedom which was very exciting so I who had already started writing a book in New York and had come to Delhi to sort of finish it realized that this was a superb place to do it Mm -hmm. it's also a place where uh, life is very much on display the contact you have with life uh, moving through the city is quite extraordinary a lot of things happen in public space people are out the city kind of reveals itself a lot, even in, if it's in its intimacy. So um, I arrived there with a great sense of a possibility of, for myself as well. And I think that, I mean, the, the way in which being in New York, you were enormously impressed by the, the media establishment. Mm-hmm. Writers are great celebrities. They're produced by publishing companies that, that live in these skyscrapers. There's a great sense of inaccessibility of it to an outsider, whereas turning up here, I felt that really I could do anything I wanted and people around me were encouraging me to do that. But it was really also one of the... It, it felt like it was it was a, a new terrain of, of capitalism mm-hmm. and that this was, this was something to watch and, and, and see how it, it moved. And every transformation has been, since then, has been quite amazing to watch. We're talking about here about Delhi as a, a sort of... 21st century into the future sort of mega city it's one of these places I guess people often talk about cities in the developing world be that Delhi or Beijing or 
Sao Paulo or, or something that's different in essence to the older world, big world cities, New York, London, Paris and things like that. But how how is Delhi that example rather than other cities in, in India perhaps? So how does Delhi differ from Mumbai or Bangalore or other places that Europeans would know as be, as being like a sort of, you know, a thrusting modern city? Well, of course, has certain things in common with those other cities. And, and one of the things it has in common is cars and pollution, mm-hmm. which are problems in all these places. Delhi actually possibly has held out for longer against those problems because the British city was uh, designed on a very grand scale. And so the thoroughfares and boulevards are actually able to take 21st century traffic. But car ownership has accelerated so fast that the infrastructure has just not been able to keep up. And that is a problem that uh, developing world cities are facing in general. Delhi has um, certain kinds of things that make it very unique, which stem from the fact that it is the capital. Mm -hmm. And as the capital, it has absorbed a lot of of that commercial activity that needs to be close to politics over the last, well, over the last two decades, but also over a longer period than that, mm-hmm. over the last 40 years, probably. So in 1991, the, the economy was opened up. Mm-hmm. This event was called liberalisation. And it was the end of 40-odd years of a centrally planned economy mm-hmm. in which the foreign convertibility of, of the rupee was strictly controlled and the import of foreign goods and services was strictly controlled and the possibilities for foreign corporations are doing business there were were low and during that period the controls over business which which actually became stricter rather than less strict during that period meant that business developed a close relationship to politics Mm -hmm. in order to expand your factory introduce a new line of products update your equipment or whatever you need approvals from government officials this is called the license raj and that obviously meant that there was a there was a close relationship which became corrupt bureaucrats were charged for these kind of things so a business community so first of all the business community decided to drift to delhi and they realized that their business success was dependent on them forming wide a wide base of political connections mm-hmm. wide enough so that when individuals would leave their jobs or parties would be elected out they would still be fine and their Mm -hmm. business could continue in a predictable kind of way. So this community of people who had started to flood into the, or flow into the capital in the, especially in the 70s, by 1991 when liberalisation happened, was was well poised to do what we know in a more familiar sense from Russia, which is to sort of seize those assets that were being deregulated by former state monopolies. Mm Especially in areas with a, which are heavily regulated, like land, mines, telecoms, some very large fortunes were made in Delhi in the, in the 90s. So the, the capital has a particular kind of flavour to it. Mm-hmm. It has a flavour of intrigue, of networking, of backroom dealing, of corruption, of a kind of elite which is doing deals that really have very little democratic scrutability, mm-hmm. um, where networking and hustling and forming connections is part of the culture, mm-hmm. but also where power and money are uh, very stern and ruthless in, their, in, in the way that they operate. And so that Delhi has been very inhospitable generally to the working classes. Bombay, for instance, has a very proud working class history in comparison to Delhi. The working classes of Delhi have built very large and, and politically assertive townships 
and the relationship between labor and and capital in in Bombay has been much much more of a negotiation uh, Delhi partly because of its British history where it was built as an, an administrative township with no space for working classes to to settle it's continued that kind of history and mm-hmm. and so the people who have come in to work in the city to build its buildings to work in its in its houses to drive its autos or to work in its factories have not generally been given living space in the city they've come they've been used they've contributed their labor and then they've been kicked out again and those who have built townships have been success, moved successively from one to one place to another further and further out of the city delhi is a city of, of parks and gardens and and tree-lined avenues and for those who are affectionate about it i mean it has a certain kind of romance but for many outsiders it's um, it appears very stern and very difficult to like for these kind of reasons i'm natalie haines and you're listening to little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture We'll come back to both post-liberalisation Delhi and also the people who have been the sort of fallout from that later on in the show. But I want to go right back, really, first of all, and and look at some of the history. Delhi here, we're talking about it as a a very modern place and it has a long and venerable history at the same time. But interestingly, unlike a lot of places which have been the modern city is built on to an old city, Delhi is a place that has just been over the years, destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt? Well, the the city traces its its history back to mythology. Mm -hmm. There are many cities of Delhi that precede Mm -hmm. the modern one, going back a thousand years or so. And as you say, the intriguing part about this is that each of these each of these cities built on the left bank of the Yamuna River was built essentially by abandoning and looting mm-hmm. what previously existed. So each grand new metropolis was surrounded by ruins. And it's one of the intriguingly consistent parts of the city that each new energy seems to drain previous energies and leave a shell. So if you look at the accounts of British travellers in the 18th and 19th centuries, at the time when what we now call Old Delhi, which was then New Delhi, mm-hmm. Shah Jahanabad, the grand metropolis of the Mughal Empire, those travellers talk about the enormous expanse of ruins that lay to the south of the city where the previous cities had been built. And it was on those ruins that the British built their city. The British had already, by the time they started laying down these foundations, had already done a good job of destroying Shah Jahanabad. They responded very vindictively to the uprising of 1857 by basically bombarding this magical metropolis and destroying lots of its gardens and houses and turning it into a militarily occupied zone. Mm -hmm. And many of its inhabitants fled, many of the aristocrats that ran the city before, and, and it's its whole culture is very refined culture of poetry and music and, and food and all these things was to a very great extent destroyed in that event and, and it had already been in a long period of decline which only continued after that. So when the British built their new city they'd already, the old city was was a shadow of its former self and the British laid their foundations over this heap of rubble. They moved out certain a number of villages and, and built this new city there. So the British were doing essentially what many rulers had done before them, which was to uh, just build afresh and build against the past rather than in harmony with the past. And in the British case, it was quite, it was a quite abrupt mm-hmm. interruption to the long history of Delhi in the sense that they architecturally built a city completely unlike anything that had been built there before and in fact, completely unlike anything really anywhere in the world. It was 
informed by 19th century English ideas of the garden city. And because they were starting from scratch, they could actually make an experiment with these ideas in which people would live in very low density, great distances from each other, with a lot of wind moving between them Mm. that would dispel the bad air, which was the sort of one of the motivating ideas of the Garden City. On this show, we talk quite a lot about uh, the built environment and town planning. Only a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the rebuilding of post-war Britain and the influence of uh, Ebenezer Howard and the Garden City movements on that. So it's uh, ironic that we find ourselves talking about it now in this context. And here again, Edwin Lutton's uh, you know, a, a venerable architect building this planned city completely out of context and in total, you know total disregard to local conditions and, and completely inappropriately, basically. Well, Lutyens did an interesting... I mean, it was a... He, he regarded Indian architecture as bad, basically, and he didn't... He felt that he was... It was a civilising mission to produce a British city in the Indian context. But he, for political reasons too, he did pay... There were a lot of visual references to Indian architecture. It was very important politically that the city be accepted as, a, as an imperial capital. The reason it had moved from Delhi, from Calcutta was because they'd been, the British had faced great political opposition in Calcutta and mm. the idea of moving to Delhi to the Mughal capital was precisely a bid for legitimacy. And so the, the architecture too had to communicate both imperial power and continuity with previous Delhi regimes. So in its choice of materials and in its choice of motifs, it was uh, in some ways continuous with those other things. He also, he and his colleagues invented um, certain kind of style of British living in India in, in terms of their bungalows and things like this, which are still very influential in the way that Delhi, even shopping malls sometimes mm-hmm. are constructed and things like that today. But it, it was a direct assault on the previous cities of, Del- mm-hmm. of Delhi in a number of ways. One was that it, for instance, viewed old Delhi, Shah Jahanabad, as a, as a place that was uncontrollable and even bewildering mm-hmm. to British administrators. Mm-hmm. It had winding alleys, it had packed bazaars. Uh, it was a place that they felt that only Orientals could inhabit and understand and that they would necessarily get lost in its streets mm-hmm. or, or whatever it might be. And that it was a place of dank air and, and disease and all that sort of thing. They, they viewed it with great xenophobic fear. And they wouldn't um, be able to put down an uprising. Exactly. They, exactly. They, their armies couldn't navigate mm-hmm. it. And so they deliberately built a city that was in, in absolute contrast to that. They had geometric avenues, easily navigable by armies and processions, and one whose sheer geometry would impress, um, geometry and openness would impress in its sort of imperial splendour. Mm-hmm. The British also did things like they abandoned a thousand years of water traditions in, in this place. I mean, one of the reasons that these cities had existed in the first place on the left bank of the Yamuna was because it lay between the Yamuna River and the Aravali mountain range to the southwest. And there were 17 streams that ran across this area of land down into the river. And there was very rich groundwater. So for a thousand years, people have been building cities there and those cities have been have been supplied by wells at these wells as you can still visit them they're some of the most spectacular pieces of architecture in delhi are these 
bowlies or step wells mm-hmm. where you can step down five stories into the ground which were not only water sources but also community monuments where there's, there are colonnades for conversation and all that sort of thing. The British decided that they needed tapped water not well water and they decided that the source for it would be the river so they piped, they dammed the river and piped water into the, their houses and they put sewage back into the river and this is also a form of control you can then tame communities by by the provision of water mm-hmm. or not. Um, and you can give water to those people you like and, and deny it to those you don't. So water became um, a big sort of imperial tool. The idea of piped water was not very appealing to a lot mm-hmm. of Delhi people. They found it foreign and ugly. The idea that you can clean your bucket and put it into a well and draw it up yourself and you know exactly where it's mm-hmm. come from is a very comforting idea when you're ruled by foreign powers. Mm-hmm who are now proposing that they will control your water and you will never see the source of it. It will just come out of a pipe in your house. So the development of piped water and tap water in Delhi was a British thing that changed relations to all kinds of relations to previous techniques. The situation we have a century later is a disaster uh, and it stems directly from that moment. The, the reason the wells worked for a thousand years is because everyone knew if you took water out, you had to put it back. So every time you built a well... You also built tanks which captured monsoon water and let it seep gradually into the ground. And the more wells you built, the more tanks you had to build. And this economy was well understood. And kings were praised for building tanks and generally improving, contributing to the economy of water. Mm. When the British decided they'd abandon this thousand-year-old system and take water out of the river, then the tanks and everything became basically just a waste of space and they gradually fell into disrepair and were taken over and built upon and real estate was made out of them as the population. So um, you didn't have any more this, this, um, this replenishment of the water table. So now we have um, a situation where the river is woefully inadequate to the, the city's needs. So all the middle classes are taking water out of the ground as quickly as they can. Mm-hmm. They've all sunk their own private wells. But no one is replenishing it, so it's drying up very fast. And now you have a situation where a large amount of the city, rich and poor, is supplied not from it's supplied by water tankers that come and you know deliver water that you have to carry into your house in buckets, or they fill it fill your tank from it. Even one five star hotel is filled by tankers which line up in the hundreds at night to fill the swimming pool and fill and, and sort of provide water for showers and all that sort of thing. So the British city was a radical departure architecturally and in all these other senses from the past. And in a way, we're still sort of recovering from it and working out how the present city can maybe forge links again with its older traditions. Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Rana Dasgupta and we're talking about his book Capital, a portrait of 21st century Delhi. And Rana, we left it in the first part talking about the uh, New Delhi, the British administrative city. 
of Delhi that was built on the ruins of thousands and thousands of years of, of Delhi history. And of course, the British Delhi itself didn't have much of a history not long after the city had been built. The, the British abandoned India and in 1947 the partition happens. And I want to talk a little bit about the effect that has on Delhi particularly because the book seems to suggest that the, the, the partition has a, a very direct effect on the on the character of Delhi even today. Mm. Yes, yeah, so I think the book is called Capital and, it, and it's, it's called that because it's also about money and mm-hmm. it's, it's about what happens when global capitalism comes into a space. And in many ways, the things that the book talks about are not entirely predictable from everything else we know about capitalism. And they've happened in other places mm-hmm. before this. But it also tries to say, the book that is, that the cultural context into which it comes makes different things of capitalism mm-hmm. and from place to place. And here, one of the things that has deeply affected the culture is this event of partition. This was, of course, um, the deal struck between the departing British Empire and the various jostling powers in negotiations over, over independence uh, when the country was going to be split into two, India and Pakistan. And the western border of Pakistan, because there was an eastern and western wing, ran just about 400 kilometers from Delhi. And those Hindus and Sikhs who were on the now found themselves in Pakistan left in large numbers to join India and Muslims in India went went into Pakistan. And this was a, a huge upheaval and a great catastrophe in which millions, possibly as many as two million people died. There were tens of thousands of rapes. There were many, a great number of abductions of women. There were some castrations of men. All these kinds of, these moments that we've seen in other places where the splitting of a, of a previously joined culture mm-hmm. results in a kind of genocidal impulse on both sides. And so the people who arrived in Delhi, and, and in many ways are the foundation of its contemporary culture, arrive from a scene of great violence. Mm-hmm. They'd lost nearly all, most of them had lost nearly everything they had. Their land, their property, their money, uh, their business. They'd come with just whatever possessions they could carry. They'd lost family members. They'd lost access to the culture that had been theirs um, before that. And they arrived and lived in refugee camps and tried to rebuild. And this event obviously had an immense uh, effect on what their relationship after that was to property, Mm -hmm. family, community, etc. If they were suspicious of community and of of their neighbours, if they were if they were anxious about putting their trust in those kind of things, it's for obvious reasons. And if they were uh, obsessed with their own financial and physical security, it's also again obvious. If owning land and property has become a huge part of Punjabi and, and indeed wider Delhi culture since, it also can be traced back to all the all these things. So yes, I think this event continues to make itself felt in the way that even these very 21st century things like the real estate market or Mm. or consumerism or whatever play themselves out. There's then a 40-year period between the the partition and the liberalisation, which we'll we'll get to in a while. These people who have settled Delhi, make lives for themselves, um, solid middle-class developed people are able to make a good living for themselves under this system of the sort of state-controlled economy. Then we get to, to 1991. So just give us a brief overview of what actually happened and why at that point. 
Nehru's idea of what the economy would look like was very influenced by the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. He he disliked the British Empire not just because it occupied India, but also because he he disliked the particular form of capitalism that it had, and he thought that India would build a, a socialist system in which everything would be controlled and where the idea of private accumulation was deeply frowned upon. And the system that he tried to build was one in which servants of the state had immense prestige and and often many perks. Mm -hmm. And even the physical city of Delhi was built very much around their importance, Mm -hmm. whether they be bureaucrats, professors in the new universities that he set up, doctors in the new hospitals that he set up, uh, lawyers, journalists... All these people are military, all these people that were state builders, mm-hmm. often who had rather, um, rather modest incomes, but were rewarded with social prestige and mm-hmm. often with public accommodation and drivers and things like this. They were the, the people who, who had prestige in Delhi society during those years. But the, the economy, which Indira Gandhi tried many things to try and revive it, was in a crisis by the 80s. Growth was very low. There were continued, despite the Green Revolution and all these kinds of things, there were still, until into the 70s, there were still threats of famine and things mm-hmm. like this. And the ideas of the idea that India might become economically self-sufficient had failed to materialize in, in many respects, and, and the balance of payments was, the, the state was in great deficit. Mm-hmm. And basically when 1991 hit, there were all those people who'd, who'd been long arguing for a relaxation of controls of the economy, had a plan already. And in 1991, India had to go to the IMF for a bailout. And one of the conditions for this, of course, was the relaxation of uh, economic controls. There had been people arguing for this for a long time, including the then finance minister, Manmohan Singh, who is mm-hmm. the current prime minister. And um, so the plan was rolled out pretty quickly, not in the kind of shock way of Latin American economies, mm-hmm. Um, it was rolled out fairly intelligently over a fairly long period of time with, with controls being relaxed mm-hmm. gradually. And so that's what happened, and, and it changed the landscape very radically. I mean, things that had been objects of fascination and fantasy before, I mean, foreign products of all sorts were now available, and foreign TV and new kinds of local commercial TV programming mm-hmm. changed the landscape very very significantly. And... It was into that new consumerist mm-hmm. India that I sort of descended a, a decade or so later. Well, India wasn't, although it Nehru had modelled it on the Soviet Union, it was still very far from, you know, as a communist state as such. So there was obviously business going on, although, as you sort of mentioned, those the central state workers and that emerging middle class had a sort of distaste for business and the business people were pushed out. And then after the post-liberalisation in 1991 business itself and the idea of of making money as a thing that itself was valuable which had been looked on with a a bit of distaste previously comes to the fore but then at the same time those people that are able to make a lot of money are able to make a lot of money because of very typically Indian connections family connections very businesses that have been held in families for generations and generations for instance Yes, you're right, of course. The Nehruvian system was, had many fundamental differences from the Soviet one. It was, after all, a democracy. He was very committed to the idea of a democracy 
and all kinds of liberal institutions, a free press and freedom of beliefs Mm -hmm. and expression. So in these respects, it was very different. And there was also a large entrepreneurial class, unlike in the Soviet Union, where business was basically all state-owned. There were three categories, three broad categories in the Indian economy. There was that which was a state monopoly, which was essential resources. Mm -hmm. There were those things that were monopolies of large corporations that were given licenses by the government. And these, these would include businesses like paper or steel or things like that. And then there was sort of small and medium sized businesses where there were essentially no controls. So the whole kind of shopkeeping class and small traders were able to operate freely in these in these years, albeit with requiring licenses for various various big investments or whatever. So the entrepreneurial culture is, is very much alive during those years. And so when liberalization happens, there are all kinds of entrepreneurial energies ready to take advantage of, mm-hmm. of all this stuff. There are lots of different guises of them. I mean, some those that were most reported in the West in that era were the IT companies. Mm -hmm. And many of those had started off before 1991 too. And many of them significantly had started far from Delhi because the software, ironically, was something that was never regulated because it was just didn't have any, Mm -hmm. it wasn't material, you couldn't see it. And so um, you could actually run software businesses without political involvement. Mm And so being as far from politics as possible is what these people preferred. And so most of the big software companies started in the south of India. They often had a very American-style ethos. They believed in the power of technology and their own ideas to generate not only revenues, but also certain kinds of social revolution. Mm -hmm. They really thought they could change the world with these sorts of institutions of software and computers and the corporate framework. And they were very committed to the integrity of the corporate framework. They were excessively honest often in their, in their dealings. And many of them became very wealthy. And this was the period around Clinton's visit in 2000 where these kind of people became very prominent as the new face of India. And there was a strong feeling that India would take over the mantle of capitalism as, as its centre shifted eastwards. If this was going to happen, it was going to be quite good because it was because they were going to basically be more just more of the same, more <clears throat> America. And and what this obscured was the kinds of entrepreneurialism of very different sort that were happening, especially in the north, which was much murkier and much more like Moscow than it was like New York or Washington D.C. In that it was much more muscular, much less dependent on talent and ideas and much more on on sheer force and power and connections and as you say i think um these connections are um are are connections that go back a long long way they're connections of a family sort family business that is at the center of this and the family business is a is a particular kind of institution that that has certain advantages over public businesses corporations and certain disadvantages Mm -hmm. i mean the, the disadvantages are clear that the standard of management might might vary greatly from generation to generation. But the um, advantages are also clear, which are that there is total investment by everyone who works in the, in the, business, in the business. And um, you can control many of the other parameters as well. You can build around your family a whole social life and, and you can intermarry and all these sorts of things in the name of the business. And you can build very effective network situations where all of these kinds of social relations from marriage to friendship or whatever are also delivering to you a commercial advantage 
And so these family businesses are the, are the ones which in a city like Delhi have a great amount of the commercial power. The two wealthiest men in Delhi both run family businesses, one in real estate and one in telecoms. Mm-hmm. And so though they have, to some extent, taken a part of their company public so they can raise more money and be, be more dynamic and everything, it is the family family business ethos that continues to guide them and, and to give them great advantages in this particular environment. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Alex Kratosky, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. In the book, you go and meet and interview a number of people that have been a huge success after liberalisation of India and I was constantly surprised at literally how much money there was sloshing around, you know, the money that people were spending, but also just how when you talked about the the prices of houses and the price, you know, at one point you talk about it costing $200 to get into some not particularly great nightclub. And I, I think we'll struggle to go out and find a, a club in, in London or in New York that would cost you $200 to get in. So clearly people were, there's people that were doing very, very well. Yes, a, a very small number of people were doing extremely well, which in a, in a country of this size is, I mean, we see the same thing in, in China. Um, if you can monopolize a certain, a certain industry, um, one can begin to imagine what kind of revenue flows one, one can control. And this became very visible around, around the time that I turned up in Delhi, the significance of this power nexus in Delhi, the degree of power and wealth that it could control mm-hmm. was was becoming quite apparent. It became apparent through things like the cars that were on the roads and all these sorts of things, but it, it became apparent also in, the, in a number of kind of outbursts of violent acts that, that were committed with a sense of impunity, by, often by the sons of politicians yeah. or business people. These violent acts were typically murders, murders often committed in the name of some idea of honour, of personal or family honour, or 
car accidents where fast cars were driven down Delhi streets as if they were on some highway in another place, a place where the roads did not also include animals, sleeping people, mm-hmm. all kinds of commerce. Uh, people driving their fast cars down roads at very high speeds and crashing into things, surprise, surprise, and uh, then getting away with it because of who their families were. Um, there was a spate of these kind of events which, which began to mark the city's culture around that time, and there was a great kind of closing ranks of the middle classes and the media against this, this new and very brash demonstration of political and, corporate mm-hmm. and, and business power in the city. So a lot of those people did eventually go to jail. And to some extent, that very cowboy-like stage of, of Delhi money and, and power kind of ended. It was very wild and gunslinging at the time. It's all become a, a lot slicker and more professional than that since then. And even the people who are still running those kind of businesses are generally more professional and well-groomed in their, in their behaviour and actually much more integrated with the, the global economy. I mean, they, they sit down with banks, with international banks and meetings. They, they look good, and it's not quite like that anymore. And, and the focus of middle-class concern has also shifted. We talked earlier about the, the traditional family structure of a, of a lot of businesses, and one of the things that comes under pressure after the post-liberalisation, after all of this money starts to be around and people start to become massively successful, is the strain on that. You know, the sort of conservative, traditional conservative Indian family structure. But also, as you just mentioned, this idea you were talking about, the shooting of Jessica Lau, the, the model there you were referring to, there seems to be this sort of crisis of masculinity as well that sort of comes out of people doing well rather than people doing badly. As you, you sort of just describe people suddenly having a lot of money and, and there being some sort of still weird dissatisfaction behind that as well and and you do talk again about perhaps some of this is is a hangover from a previous generation and the the things that people had suffered during the partition or had witnessed during the partition but let's perhaps talk a little bit more widely about that that idea I mean I'm sure for people listening to this show when we mentioned Delhi one of the obvious things I'll think about from the last few years is the sort of people being raped on buses and things so this crisis of, of masculinity goes right through the, the society not just the people that we're talking about in the middle classes but where do you think it comes from? Well one of the things that's happened in the last couple of decades is that the situation, the place of women in, in this mm-hmm. society has changed massively. It's been quite extraordinary that in the majority of women who, who are, say, let's say under 45, of middle-class women, they look very different from their mothers and they often have a very different lifestyle. So there has been a mass movement of middle-class women out to work. Working-class women always worked and women from the very top echelons of society often worked, as we, as we know from the prominent women in, mm-hmm. in, in culture and politics and all those sorts of things. But middle-class women in Delhi for much of the 20th century didn't. And so this mobility of women, which has made them economically independent, uh, has given them also a social world which other people around them don't know about. Um, and the fact that mobile phones and all kinds of other technologies mean that they are in so many ways outside the house, even when they're in the house, um, has created lots of anxieties amongst men. And those anxieties are very complex. And yes, I think some of them go back to the fact that what was called into question at the moment of partition was precisely 
their ownership and control mm -hmm. of women. Uh, whether they were able to defend their women, control their women, prevent them from being taken away from them and, and abducted. The fact that these things were done at all was designed to shame masculinity, mm -hmm. to shame patriarchal control. And so I, I think that there is... Uh, in North India, I see a, a greater anxiety about being shown up in these kind of ways than in other parts of India. So the idea that women sort of are eluding patriarchal control is something that causes a lot of readjustments and turbulence within households and on the streets. Mm -hmm. and, and my reading of what happens on the streets is that um, the fact of women on the streets, the fact of women being self-confident on the streets, um, the fact that they have an economic and social and sexual world that takes them out at whatever time of day and is something that a certain group of men or a certain number of men feel must be stopped or must be punished. And so attacks like the one you're talking about, the rape that happened in, in 2012, which was a rape and a murder, and which was shocking in its kind of military nature as much as its sexual nature, in the, in the way that it just seemed like such a, 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 violently, a violent punishment of, of a woman's femininity mm -hmm. in, its, in its most physical sense. What's striking about these kind of events is, is not only the event itself, but the inability of the political and judicial and the police communities is their inability to express outrage. Mm -hmm. It was very difficult for people in those positions of power to say that something wrong had happened and that was caused by a bunch of men. Mm. They couldn't stop footnoting that with the fact that this was a woman who was out at nine o'clock at night and... Always there are comments about how women are dressed and whether they should be out at all. It strikes me that it is not simply men without principle who are responsible for all this, which is how it's often portrayed in the media, that men with principle, men who in fact have made principle their life's work, um, somehow debating and upholding the values of society, seem themselves to be quite complicit in all this. And that it almost feels like a principal attack on women, a kind of defence of some, of some bastion of male power. So it's definitely related to all the things that have been happening in, in, in society over the last couple of decades. And it's, it's, it, it goes deep and will have many other tragic outcomes before it's resolved. But there was definitely a huge upswelling of anger, protests on the street, which might not necessarily have, have happened in the way they did 10 years previously. No, I mean, this is in a way where my book leaves off um, because it's actually as I was finishing it the streets were full of people mm -hmm. and uh, the first wave of protests was over corruption and this wave of protests led to a political movement and um, a completely new face of politics in in the city and mm -hmm. perhaps in the country at large and there were then a series of protests and and, and significant introspections about what kind of society was being produced after this rape. What was this leading us to, this entire sort of financial calculation that everyone had been making for the previous two decades? How can I maximise my, my return? How can I just shut my eyes to whatever is happening and, and hope that my property would carry on rising in value and my salary will keep going up and all that? Even those people who were the winners of all this started thinking that we are creating a nightmare and we have to sort of think about what kind of society this is and what our values are. And that, that in many ways has been the fundamental question of the city in the time since I've written this book.
listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Rana Dasgupta, and we're talking about his book, Capital, A Portrait of 21st Century Delhi. And Rana, for most of the interview, we've been talking about people who have done very well out of post-liberalisation. And I want to spend the last part of the show talking about people who have not even necessarily have not done well, but who it's just entirely passed by. So at one point in the book, you go and spend some time with a, a woman who's a sort of community liaison at a, um, a place called Balswa, a slum city, which, well, I'll let you tell the story of what it is and how it got there, because it's an interesting story how people are just constantly duped and moved around to these places. Yes, I, I went with her to meet three uh, women in their 50s who had moved there from other places. Uh, they had all come to Delhi in the late 80s or early 90s, and they had all, in that period of time, built townships. Um, and when I say built, I really mean built. They'd, often their husbands were trained in construction work, and they had, with their families, physically built these towns, built streets, built sewer systems, built houses, built schools and mosques and temples. And these townships were thriving social centres with populations of 30 or 40,000 people and, and all the kinds of complexities and, and, and loyalties that any city has. So in the first decade of the 21st century, which was the decade that led up to the 2010 Commonwealth Games, mm-hmm. there was a concerted effort to change the city, as one newspaper put it, from walled city to world city. And the idea of what that meant was that it would have towers, it would have shopping malls, and it wouldn't have slums. Mm-hmm. And so... Middle classes and political elites alike loved this idea and were, were not particularly concerned at the widespread demolitions of slums that, that happened at that time. So um, without much discussion, um, a few hundred thousand people had their, their settlements knocked down. And in the case of these women, these three women, they were moved often under false pretenses, pretenses and assurances of things that never happened, of, of houses and schools and all, all kinds of things like that. They were moved about 40 kilometres away to a sort of incredibly grim I mean, it's difficult to imagine actually a grimmer place. They arrived in a truck and were dropped in a swamp which lay at the foot of a truly enormous mountain of rubbish. It was, it's this, one of the city rubbish dumps. Uh, it's large enough for trucks to be driving on the, on the top of it. It's absolutely vast. And through this mountain of rubbish, uh, leached rainwater into the ground poisoning the ground and making of this swamp essentially a absolutely a chemical and inhospitable place uh, where where everyone got rashes and and all kinds of other sicknesses so um, when these um, communities arrived there sometime in the middle of the first decade of the 21st century they didn't have anything else to do except start building so they they drained the land they started building they had to lobby for cement and stone and bricks. They built um, streets and houses and they had to lobby for electricity supplies and bus routes. Um, They had to try and get their kids into school. It was largely the women that did this because the men who'd been moved out had almost all lost their jobs, which were too far for them to now participate in. The women could find new jobs as domestic servants in nearby middle-class neighbourhoods. So a lot of the men had been 
had had suffered a huge sort of psychological blow, as, and, and many of them became alcoholics and wanted just to retreat from life. So the women were bringing up the children, trying to earn the money, trying to do all this political lobbying. Many of them would they would have to camp outside the house of the chief minister of Delhi to get all these political concessions, which obviously meant time off work. So they'd have to share this sort of protest time and work time. They were enormously impressive individuals who were uh, very politically active, enormously able administrators and organisers. They were um, calm and um, extremely tranquil people compared to most other people I met in, in the city. But they were very angry about the way that things were organised. There was very little about the political equation that escaped mm-hmm. their, their analysis. The way in which resources were constantly directed away from the poor and towards the rich of the city the way that very little accommodation was made in any sense for the people who built the city and who cleaned it and maintained it was absolutely clear to them. And the, the woman you, you mentioned, the woman who was, uh, who was organising them, organising with them, was um, driven to writing poetry about the injustice of it because she just had no other outlet for her uh, immense rage about it. We're quickly running out of time, but just to finish off, I want to look at the possibility of the, you know how things will be in the future, but let's do that by saying you know what about your future? How long do you see yourself staying in Delhi? And do you think you know do you think it's gonna it's gonna turn out better? Well, I'm going to be there for a while, and I have a daughter who's growing up there, and so I'm I'm invested in the future of the city. And one of the reasons for writing a book like this is to try and work out how viable the life is in a place like this. I honestly think that the answer to that is not clear to anyone. (laughs) It's not a human experiment that's been done before. And I don't think that the history of the West is a good guide to the future of places like this. There are lots of things that characterised the 20th century West are not there (laughs) in, in 21st century Asia. The world wars, the fear of communism, a lot of these... These, these factors that came from outside the capitalist system meant that enormous concessions were made by elites in Europe and, and very class-ridden societies were able to, despite that fact, build truly democratic systems. Very few of those factors are currently present mm-hmm. in the place I live and there is such division amongst those people who are most exploited by the current system that it's very difficult to imagine them being united in any kind of revolution so elites are currently under rather little pressure to give away many, many concessions, mm-hmm. and so they're not, which is the way that things are, always are. At the same time, this is not a broken state or a broken society. This is a highly sophisticated society with very educated people, with a great sense of what um, their own civilization and culture means and what it has delivered in the past. And I suspect a not infinite uh, tolerance of disorder or violence or cruelty. And as we, as we get into a more, you, know, you could say, mature stage of a lot of these processes that have been un- unfurled for the last couple of decades, we see um, very deep questioning of what kind of society is being produced here and where one might look to for answers or, or for, for a sort of philosophical basis for, for a, a better kind of society. I don't doubt that there is um, great... The society has great resources of creativity in these directions... Um, one has to stick around long enough and try and feed that process. I think that's quite an optimistic point for us to finish on. So I've been talking to Rana Dasgupta and we've been talking about his book Capital, a portrait of 21st century Delhi. So Rana, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me today. Thank you. 
Jay Courtney Sullivan, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. So I'm on the phone for the second time in this little feature with the writer Sarah Dytum. And Sarah, what are we going to talk about this time? We're going to talk about quite an unpopular and maligned book. We're going to talk about Intercourse by Andrea Dworkin. Okay, so let's talk about Andrea Dworkin first of all. I mean, she's come to represent the very dictionary definition of, you know, a not-fun, man-hating feminist, hasn't she? Absolutely, and I think that is because she's a very, very uncompromising individual. There is nothing about the way she presented herself that was intended to be pleasing according to conventional norms of what a woman should be. She's argumentative, she was um, incredibly intelligent and not a bit ashamed to show it. And she was fat and more dungarees. <laughs> These are not things that are going to endear you as a woman in general. And because of those things, she has become the, the bogeyman to everyone who sees her as an intellectual opponent. And she had some life as well. I mean, she had some life experiences, to say the least. She had an extraordinary life. I think if she was involved in the anti-war movement in America, um, she was... Um, incredibly assertive as a woman in those kind of, well, I mean, I think we're quite familiar at the moment with um, what we know has happened within the SWP in the UK. We're quite familiar with those spaces and not necessarily woman-friendly spaces. And that's an experience that Dworkin encountered as well and one that she pushed back against. Um, she travelled, lived in Paris. She formed a remarkable loving relationship with a man who um, I believe they were married. So she had this intense friendship and close relationship with a man while at the same time always considering herself a political lesbian. And she lived a life of what you would call bohemian adventure, like absolute intellectual and geographical freedom and intrepidness. I actually read very early on in my in my early 20s her book Pornography, Men Possessing Women. It was the first feminist book that I ever read and it had, it had an incredible effect on me and I think on feminist issues has started from that position and then has been revised over the over the next 20 years or so. Now for you it's different isn't it? I mean you've obviously come to her quite late. Yeah absolutely I think I've made very much the opposite approach. I um, kind of started from quite a, a kind of vague and liberal <laughs> um, engagement with feminism and it's only been quite recently that I've become more interested in in the radical critique of patriarchy, which is obviously where Dworkin comes in. So I, it's only very recently that I've, that I've started reading her, and Intercourse is the first of her books that I've actually read. So it's a great surprise, actually, having only known her as this sort of looming figure of badness with which you wouldn't want to be associated, to read this text and find her as a writer is in no way comparable with the monster that she's been cast as. And I think it speaks a lot of the power of her work and ideas that it's only been by completely flattening her into caricature that people who oppose her have been able to rid themselves of her argument. So let's talk about the argument in intercourse. What is intercourse about? It's a book that's often summed up 
and no doubt you'll say wrongly as being basically about all heterosexual sex is rape. Yeah, I think that is that is a wrong summary of it, and I think it is a misreading that is completely understandable given the given the argument that she puts forward. So the basic argument of intercourse is that everyone, man and woman, we live in a society that is, well, she describes it as an ecology of male dominance in the book. So there are multiple systems and social conditions that mean men are in charge and women are maintained in a subordinate position. And her question, essentially, her challenge is how can you have that social relationship and have sex that is equal and pleasurable and is in any way consented to. And her argument is, so I suppose the more accurate summary would be not that she's saying all heterosexual sex is rape, but that she's saying all heterosexual sex that takes place within a patriarchy is liable to be coercive and liable to be harmful to women. And it's a a very persuasive argument. And more than that, it's a beautifully made argument and it's based on incredibly acute readings of great texts of literature. So this is another surprise that I had reading it because I could have jumped in thinking that I was going to be reading a feminist polemic. And what it actually is, is a series of intimate, close readings of books that you think you know. I mean, well, certainly um, I'm someone who studied um, English literature, not English literature, who studied 19th century literature particularly. And she writes about Tolstoy, she writes about Flaubert, she writes about books that I've read and have kind of come to in the first place from the recognition of their genius. And she, she reads them incredibly closely. She knows these books and what she identifies in them is the coercive sexism that imbues the way they're written and absolutely dazzling. I think if you've got any interest in the art of criticism, Dworkin is one of the people who you should read. Without going into too much detail, can you just sum up then what she thinks should and could change? Because I guess, I mean, in the crudest possible terms, I presume, you know, we obviously want to to keep propagating the human race. There's no way out of of this. So what's her solutions to making the interactions between men and women more equal then? Well, I would say one of the other surprises of reading intercourse is that it's not a book that makes you feel that sex is a bad thing. It's a very... It's, it's a book that really understands intimacy. I'd say Dworkin knows an awful lot more about sex and an awful lot more about the value of intimacy than a lot of people who cast themselves as sex positive in contrast to her anti-pornography arguments. So one of the really important ideas in intercourse is the idea that women are seen as less than human because they can be penetrated, because they have these permeable bodies, and that we have a cultural idea that men are human because they are impermeable and that that idea um, isn't just about the physical body so it isn't just about penises and vaginas it's about the idea that the male is questing and penetrating in his intellect as well and women are supposed to be soft and absorbent and not consistent as people in their own right if that kind of makes sense if I've managed to summarize that in a way that is understandable for Dworkin, what she's really interested in is this idea of personal exchange. So intercourse, um, you know, we talk about intercourse, it doesn't just mean sexual intercourse, it means verbal intercourse, it means the idea of, of taking in ideas and understandings and sympathies with each other. And what kind of comes through within intercourse is this ideal where the act of intimacy 
of any kind, sexual intimacy is a kind of paradigm of it, but also intellectual intimacy is a moment of exchange and understanding and sort of raw contact where you put your own sense of self on the line by bringing it into contact with somebody else's. And it's extremely powerful, it's extremely moving. And to me, much more appealing than the kind of idea of sex as something that's fundamentally harmless and inert. That, you know, to me, when you talk, when people kind of discuss sex, something I know people just do, it makes me imagine that humans are just, you know, billiard balls rolling around next to each other. And we're not, we touch each other, we live together, we, we change each other by being close. And that's the thing that intercourse sort of challenges you to accept that in closeness you can be changed and you can change someone we could spend an hour easily talking about the you know the arguments and her ideas and and the rights and wrongs of those but most interestingly in the short time we've got i want to talk about how reading her work has changed you i think it's the it's kind of it's coming into contact with that idea of radicalism Uh, ariel levy's introduction is is fascinating because she kind of introduces it with this idea that it's a failure. I think she says, um, so Levy writes, with the possible exception of the Shakers, it's difficult to think of an American movement that has failed more spectacularly than anti-pornography feminism. So Levy is the author of Female Chauvinist Pigs and is a very keen observer of raunch culture and the way in which women have, in Levy's view, come to kind of embrace and draw power from their subordinate sexual position and from acting in a way that is designed to induce male pleasure rather than asserting a sense of themselves as human in their own right. What reading Dworkin kind of takes you back to is this historical moment when change felt possible and where the idea of feminism didn't just mean tinkering around the edges and trying to find a way in which you could exist more comfortably within patriarchy. What Dworkin and her peers are writing about is the idea that people could live differently and we're not condemned to live with the structures that we inherit. Both the books that we've mentioned were written in the 1980s. Dworkin died in 2005, so but she lived to see the internet, but not necessarily the, the explosion of the, the things that she was concerned about on the internet. Do you think the, you know, the rise of the internet and the, the freedoms that have, have allowed have sort of vindicated her arguments, or do you think that the internet perhaps offers, offers some solutions as well? Um, I think one of the interesting things about the internet is, actually this is something that David Aronovich has spoken about quite interestingly, is that the rise of the internet has kind of been tied to this libertarian ideology that whatever is, is good. And that's, you know, and that has had certain good effects in terms of the propagation of information and the idea that sharing is good. But it also enforces this kind of moral irresponsibility where people tend to say, oh, well, this exists because people want it, because people are like that. Therefore, we can't do anything about it. And there's been this tendency to accept that there is an entitlement or even a social good in the propagation and production of models of sexuality that are fundamentally violent. And I think, you know, you can certainly find pornography that is generous and kind and shows loving. I mean, um, (laughs) I saw a really um, very beautiful tweet from Kat Moran actually saying that there is something, something holy about being able to see two people who really fancy each other having sex. And 
I think and that's a very dwarkenish idea of the sexual relationship. But at the same time, it is undeniable that what the internet has allowed has been this kind of constant reassertion of very ugly dynamics of power and sex that Walking writes about. So I would say she would certainly see it as a vindication, really, rather than <laughs> rather than anything approaching a way out. And really, the way out can only be in us as individuals being willing to critique our own desires and critique what our sexuality says about the kind of way we would like to live. I saw another quote about Dworkin, which was disparaging, but I thought was at the same time lovely, which described her as a sad ghost haunting feminism that needed to be expunged. And as I said, she she died in 2005, so she's not around to critique what's going on now in the world with the internet and with feminism today. So who do you think, does she have any heirs? I mean, who is there that, that would be worth reading that's sort of carrying on her work? Levy, absolutely. Ariel Levy is a fantastic writer. And I think like walking, she is someone who is nimble enough to critique the way in which women can be seduced into using the illusory powers of patriarchy to their own individual advantage and their own advantage as a class. So I think Ariel Levy is absolutely her intellectual heir. And I would encourage anyone to read her, not least because she's liked walking. She is an extraordinary prose stylist. And that's another thing that I think people rarely say about walking because they're so, you know, people are so obsessed with her personal unattractiveness. Her writing is beautiful. So we've been talking about. Andrea Dworkin, I was going to say Intercourse by Andrea Dworkin, but we've been talking probably about Andrea Dworkin more than we have about that particular book with uh, writer Sarah Dyson. Sarah, thank you very much for taking the time to come on again and talk to me. Thanks, it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Adams podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Adams. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.